Romans chapter 5, and let's read verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has begun, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, what a wonderful gospel this is. We thank you again that you have not only saved us, but you've revealed this great plan to us so that we may rejoice in it together. What a blessed people we are to be able to rejoice before you as we do, to sing as we have of our Savior and what he has done for us and in our place, to be able to rejoice before you in the knowledge that you accept us and love us and welcome us into your presence freely because of the Lord Jesus. And what a privilege it is to be able to open your word and to read these wonderful truths intended for our good, that we may rejoice in them for your glory. We pray that you will bless us to that end this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have been tracing the, Paul's argument in this letter. He takes as his text Romans 1, verse 17, that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is, in the gospel, we have a declaration of the, not just the love of God, although that's true, his point here, we have a declaration in the gospel of the righteousness of God. And so he says, this righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or by faith and nothing but faith is, I think, the idea there. This righteousness from God is revealed to us in the gospel, coming by faith alone. And then he takes as his Old Testament proof for this statement from um, Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, or he who through faith is righteous shall live. And then intending to establish this point, now he backs up and begins, first of all, as we saw in chapters 1 through 3, establishing the need of justification, the need for this gift of righteousness. And we saw that at most length in chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, 
And if you'd like, you can highlight Paul's argument this way by noticing the connecting uh, phrases and uh, uh, words that trace the argument. For example, verse 18, for, that is, now he's giving explanation. The gospel is a declaration of God's righteousness by faith alone, without works. That's the implication of all of that. Now to establish that, he says, for the wrath of God is being revealed against those who suppress the truth. Verse 19, because, or for, what can be known about God is plain to them. Verse, four, verse 20, for his, invi- his invisible attributes are evident to them. The end of verse 20, so they're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did this and that and became wicked in various ways. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, for, because of this, God, uh, because they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. And then again, verse 32, though they knew God's decree, they didn't follow it knowing that judgment would come. And so Paul's traced on his argument, they knew this, they knew the other. It was continually uh, repressed, rebelled against, and rebelled against, and rebelled against. Continuously was this this, uh, recognition of God from the created order, and by virtue of the fact that they're created in His image. But continuously and repeatedly and repeatedly, it is rebelled against. And so Paul's argument here is, that humanity's problem is not ignorance. His problem is not that he doesn't know better. Humanity's problem is rebellion. We all know better than we do. And this even true for those who have not received any kind of special revelation, but only what we call general revelation. Then coming to chapter 2, we find him developing the same argument in reference to those who have the law of God, that is, we who have the law of God written on our hearts. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where he states it most plainly. Conscience, bearing witness to what we ought to do and ought not to do, at sometimes accusing us, at sometimes excusing us, but even in our conscience, in our heart of hearts, we know right from wrong, good from bad, but we still haven't followed it. So he's in the process of indicting all of humanity, We all know better than what we do. From the created order, we know things about God. We don't follow it. We won't have it. In our conscience, we know things about God and His righteous requirements. We won't have that either. And then we come later in chapter 2, as we saw this morning, into chapter 3 as well. And here we have Him speaking directly to Jews who have the Israelites, who have received the law of God, and having received special revelation now. Not just general revelation. Not just what is in conscience and in the heart, but objectively now God has given the law, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Those who have received the law have rebelled against that, and so Israel is a picture of the whole world, sort of a microcosm, picture of the whole world where all of us, no matter how much or how little revelation we have received, we have rebelled against what we know. And so universal condemnation has been established the need for righteousness. And we got through this and we said this morning that Paul's point is to say that universally everyone is lost sinner. We've all gone our own ways and rebelled against God. 
But his larger point, in the context of Romans, is to say that if there is not a way for God to give us righteousness freely, we're lost. Because there's nothing for people in this situation, and that's all of us, there's nothing that we can do at this point now, given our rebellion, there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. So we're left lost, as bad off as we can possibly be. We've rebelled against God's law. We've rebelled against His will. However much or little we've known about it, we've rebelled against it. We don't want to fix the problem. We can't fix the problem, wouldn't if we could. The need for justification. Then we got to the last part of chapter 3 this morning, and we saw that Paul begins his exposition of the doctrine of justification by faith in chapter 3, verse 21. And here he works it out in a very careful argument to say that God cannot compromise the demands of his righteousness. He will never save anyone by sidestepping justice. God can never say, well, sin doesn't matter. Sin must be judged. The sinner must be condemned. God's justice requires it. And so the question of justification, first of all, we said, is not a a problem that faces us so much as it is a problem that faces God. How can a just God justly justify sinners? And this is the argument Paul takes up. And it is to say that he cannot judge, he cannot um, acquit or justify sinners unless somehow a just way is found for him to do so. And that just way is found in Christ who has come as our substitute, taking our place, bearing our sin, in our stead, doing for us all that God requires of us, by His work on the cross, buying us out of our sin, making satisfaction to God's justice, that's the verse 25, the propitiation, making satisfaction to God's justice, and standing in our place, doing for us all that God requires of us. God's wrath is satisfied because the sinner is judged. The sinner is judged in the person of our substitute. God's righteousness requirements are met, and God now is able to justify ungodly people justly. And so we saw in verse 26, he's he's both just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. That is, we go to Christ in faith, acknowledging our sin, resting entirely upon him, and acknowledge that not because of all of our sins and despite all of our best efforts, we need someone who can rescue us. And we rest our entire case in Christ, who alone has done what God has required. That's Paul's exposition in late chapter 3. Then we saw in chapter 4 that Paul offers his first line of proof from the uh, illustration of Abraham in the Old Testament. His argument here uh, primarily is to say that God will not be obliged to anyone. There's no way that anyone can obligate God to do anything. And no one will ever come to God saying, I've worked this, I've done that, I've been baptized, I've joined the church whatever, and God will say, oh, well, okay, I guess I have to let you in. God will not be obliged to anyone. He will not be indebted to anyone. 
And so to make his point, he gives an illustration of Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, God enters into covenant promise with Abraham. And you remember the scene, a dramatic scene in the Old Testament where the animals are cut in two and God alone, not Abraham, but God alone passes between them, taking upon himself the responsibilities of the covenant. And he makes his promise to Abraham, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And Paul says, there it is. Abraham was saved by faith alone. Now, you might come up with the argument then and say, well, no, Abraham was faithful, and that faithfulness was uh, demonstrated in his circumcision, keeping the covenant obligation as God had required, and that's why he was justified. And so Paul comes back and says, well, let's, wait a minute, let's think about that. When, did, when was Abraham justified? Answer, Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and is counted to him for righteousness. Next question, when was Abraham circumcised? Not till Genesis 17, years later. And Paul's simple argument is a chronological one. Abraham's justification had nothing to do with anything he did, not even his circumcision. Not his keeping of any covenant obligations. He was justified by faith alone. Now we come to chapter 5. And we will just highlight the argument here before we have the Lord's Supper. In the passage that we've read, Paul is offering a second line of proof. And it's an interesting line of proof for his doctrine of justification by faith. First line of proof was Abraham, Old Testament scriptures. And now he offers the line of proof from the common experience of all Christians. It's interesting to see the Apostle giving an, uh, a line of proof that works from our experience. Keep in mind, this isn't his only proof, but it is one. And as we've read, well, let's take it with verse 1 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He does not here say, you must have peace, have peace. He's not exhorting us. He's saying, being justified by faith, we have peace. And this peace with God, as he goes on to uh, explain it and unpack it in the following verses, is not only a judicial peace with God, where God the judge is satisfied, but it's an experienced peace that we all have. Our conscience is at rest with God. And the logic of it works something like this. As we saw in chapter 1, we are created in God's image. Because we are created in God's image, we have a sense of, of awareness of God. With that, we have a sense of dependence upon God. We have a sense of obligation to God. With that, then, we have a sense of justice, right and wrong. With that, we have a sense of guilt, because we know we've not made the grave. And so with that, in every one of us, there's this inexpungible sense of guilt, how can I be rid of my sin? And the most natural response is to say, well, I must work hard. I must do this, that, or the other. And so it goes like this. I will keep the Ten Commandments, and God will have me. And no matter how hard we try, at the end of the day, we have to say, I haven't done it. And so we back up to another way. 
well, I won't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, but I'll keep them at least the majority. And so we try to keep the majority of the Ten Commandments, majority of the time. How's that working? And we, we, we might try that avenue, but still the conscience accuses. Still the conscience accuses because we know we have not made the grade. We have not done well enough. And so we adjust a little bit more. Say, well, I'll try my best. And I'll approach God on that basis. And doing my best, God will have me. And we go, how, how, I, how do I know? Have I done my best? And we think really soberly someday, when have I ever done my best? And we keep looking for these means of justification before God. And the bottom line is the conscience never allows it. But if God comes to us ahead of time and says, give it up, you can't do it. But my son has. He has endured the, my wrath against sin. He has accomplished all the righteousness you need and more. And you may have him, not by earning him, but by confessing your sin and resting in him. You will have in him all that I require of you freely. If God tells us that up, up front, like he does in the gospel, and we then go to Christ, there is nothing now that our conscience can find to object to. There's no objection we can come up with. Conscience is at peace because conscience, being sort of the shadow of divine judgment, recognizes that God is satisfied. All of the demands of divine justice have been met. And being justified by faith, not being justified by works, but being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Hasn't that been your experience, Paul said? Think when you came to Christ. You came to trust in Christ as your Savior. Isn't the first, first upshot of that that this wonderful sense of peace with God? Well, this isn't the final argument of the story, but it's one very powerful argument. We have peace with God in this means of justification. And Paul is simply appealing to the common experience of all Christians. We recognize, our conscience recognizes, that in this method of justification, every demand of divine justice has been met. God is satisfied, and so our conscience is satisfied as well, and we are at peace with God. That then brings us to chapter 5, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. We're going to spend a little bit more time here, so let's read through the passage. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet... Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment followed, following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, Paul here offers his third line of proof. First line of proof is from the illustration of Abraham and his experience of justification. The second was a proof derived from the common experience of all Christians, and now proof that is derived from the analogy of Adam. And we have here Paul's discussion of the two humanities. The problem here is established with two metaphors. There's the legal metaphor. In legal terms, the question is how can we survive the penalty, condemnation? Or in accounting terms, how can we pay the debt? And in verses 12 through the end of the chapter, Paul gives us the big picture approach, establishing the principle of, and you have to get this to understand the passage, the principle of legal representation. Legal representation. And he traces the problem back to its ultimate origin. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Who's that? Adam, right? All right, it's just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. All right, follow Paul's thinking here. He's tracing it back to Adam. When did sin first come into the world? Answer, Adam. What? When did death first come into the world? Answer, Adam sinned. All have sinned then in Adam because all die. That's Paul's argument. By Adam, sin has entered into humanity. Death is the penalty of sin. God said that to Adam. The day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die. And by Adam's sin, death has passed on all of humanity. I think Paul came up with this doctrine simply by reading the narrative in Genesis. We have in Genesis chapter 3, the story of the fall, Adam's sin. By the time we get to chapter 5, we find the statement that Adam had a son born in his likeness, and the whole theme of chapter 5 is he lived this long and he died. He lived this long and he died. He lived this long and had children and he died. And he lived this long and had children and he died. And he lived this long and had children and he died. And over and again, we have this refrain of death having entered into humanity. And so Paul is simply surmising from that that death has passed into humanity because of one man's sin, Adam. Adam was acting as the legal represent, the representative 
of all of humanity, and all of humanity is treated in him. And so God does not treat humanity as like a field of corn. Everyone's standing on his own. But God treats humanity as a tree with one trunk, and that trunk is Adam. So the point then is that Adam is our representative head. By one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And Paul's argument is simply that the reason death has entered into humanity is because of Adam's sin. Now, before we go any further, we've got to take up the question that everybody asks at this point, and this has become more and more opposed in our day by professing Christians as well. That's not fair. Why should we be held accountable for Adam's sin? There are several lines of response to that that I think are important to give. Number one, it's Paul's plain argument here in Romans chapter 5. Whether you understand all of the ins and outs of it, or the details or the ramifications, is another question. Paul's point here is very clear that death reigns in humanity because of one man's sin. He repeats himself in this regard several times throughout the chapter. It could not be plainer. And again, he's making his point, I think, from simply reading the narrative of Genesis itself. So our first response has to be to that. That's not fair. It is what God has said. It must be fair, whether you understand it or not. But there are other responses to give as well. And one of them is simply to say, to point out that all of the cards were stacked in Adam's favor. He had the best advantage. He had a perfect environment. He had no legacy of sin behind him. He didn't have any bad examples to follow. He didn't have to be torn away because of a long history in his family of drug abuse and whatever. All the cards were stacked in his favor. He's given fellowship with God. He's placed in a garden. He has a wife. They're in perfect fellowship with God. The implication were given in Genesis. They walk with God in, in, in fellowship with him daily. Only one prohibition. Eat all you want. Everything. One prohibition. Don't eat that tree. That's all. I think he had a better chance of things than we do. It's like when I was in undergraduate work. I remember walking in for an exam one day at the end of a semester, and the professor said, okay, what we're going to do is I'm going to pick one person from the class to take the exam, and whatever grade he gives gets, I'm going to give to the rest of the class. What do you think about that? Now, if you're one of the A students, you're thinking, uh, no thanks. I'll take this on my own. Now, if you're one of the flunkies in the back row, you say, yeah, go for it. And I think that's the point here. Out of all the cards were stacked in his favor. He had a better advantage than any of the rest of us. The next response, I think, is simply to say, very honestly, you would do no better. Anybody want to stand up and say, well, if I could have this position Adam had, I'd I'd have done better. He wouldn't have done any better. And in fact, our next response, you haven't done any better. Okay, you're on your own. How's that working out for you? And that brings us to the last response, and this is what Paul will develop throughout the rest of the chapter, and that is, whatever we lost because of this principle of representation, Whatever we lost in Adam, we've more than regained 
in another Adam, another representative who has stood in our place. Now again, this is a one line of biblical teaching that's increasingly objected to, but it's clearly Paul's point. Verse 12, through one man sin and death entered into the world. Verse 15, by one man's offense many died. Verse 16, the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation for us all. Verse 17, by one man's offense death reigned. Verse 18, through one man's offense, judgment came. Verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And so one consideration, and Paul deals with this in the opening verses of this passage, that settles the matter immediately is question simply, do people die? People die, how do you explain that? How do people die? If they die they evidently are tied somehow to Adam who brought death into the world through his sin. Death, then, is the penalty of sin. It comes because of sin and as a judgment against sin. When people die, we are reminded every time that we're living under a curse that God has pronounced death in judgment for sin. Now, you might respond and say, well, no, people die because of their own sin. But you don't have to think long before that doesn't work either. Now, it brings in another tough question that just doesn't work. If you're going to say people die only because of their own sins, how do you handle a tsunami that comes and takes the life of so many people, even infants, a day old, how do you handle that? Is God unfair in doing that? Well, Paul takes up that issue in verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. All right, This is after Adam and before Moses. Sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. That is, unless there is a law... To objectify sin, sin is not imputed. Yet, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. How do you explain that? Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That is, it was not like Adam who had a clear expression of God's law specially given. Don't eat that tree. And yet after Adam and before Moses, without any Thou shalt, thou shalt not, given directly from God, people died. Death is not imputed where there is no law to recognize sin as such. So how do you explain the fact that from Adam to Moses, people died? Paul's argument is simply to say, they're tied to Adam. And his the sin had results for all of humanity. There's a real participation in Adam who was our legal representative. Now before we go any further, we should just stop long enough to 
recognize, by the way, one other response to give when people object to this idea of legal representation, we as Americans especially don't have much room to object to that because we like this form of government. We say it's the best in the world. Those guys in Washington make a vote for higher taxes, and it doesn't matter whether you voted for it or not. You're caught up in it. They vote to go to war or not, you're caught up in it, like it or not. And we say that this is the best form of government. It's, this is the kind of thing that's going on, legal representation. But let's use this, then, to handle some of the hard questions. God may have any number of particular reasons for a death in any given circumstance, we can't know. We can't know. It's presumptuous for Christians to stand up after some tragedy or whatever and say, God did this for that reason. We may be sure that God was involved, but to know specific reasons, I think, is very often presumptuous. But we also have to recognize that in no suffering and in no death is God being unfair. He is never unfair in any particular suffering or death, and he's not unfair simply because there are no innocent people. And there are no innocent people, first of all, no innocent people for lots of other reasons, but first of all, there are no innocent people because we're bound up with Adam who sinned. In the estimation of God, all of us, this is verse 12 again, all have sinned in Adam. By virtue of all of our involvement in Adam, we have sinned in him, and because of him, then, death has passed upon all men. Now, if that's difficult for you, if that bothers you, read on. And Paul's argument here is simply to say, his whole point of this passage is to say, that whatever we lost by this principle of representation, whatever we lost in Adam, we have more than regained in Christ. So look at verses 14 or verses 15 through 19 again. Try to follow his train of thought. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Notice what he said, by the way, at the end of verse 14. Those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Here we have it made explicit for us that in some sense he's going to unpack now, Adam was a type of Jesus, a picture of Christ. So, verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That is, one person sinned and many died because of it. But one person obeyed, and we have different results entirely. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life of in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, 
Many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now there's a contrast and a parallel that's being established here then between Adam and Christ. They both are public persons. Both of them are representative heads of humanity. And each of them acted in that capacity. And the results of that action fall upon all of those for whom they are acting as federal head. And so Adam disobeys. And as a result, what has happened? Death is passed upon all men. We're all condemned. Jesus comes along, a new federal head, and he doesn't disobey. He obeys. And what happens? Those for whom he is representative head, righteousness, not de- uh, condemnation, but justification comes. Not death, but life. Disobedience, obedience. As a result, death. As a result, life. As a result over here, condemnation. Result over here, justification. So what happens to the representative happens to all of those for whom they are representative. And this is a representative. And that's Paul's whole argument in this passage. So on the one hand, there's a great similarity between Adam and Jesus. Both are representative heads. Both act with the interests of others. The results of each action follow flow to all of the others. But that's where the similarity ends and the difference begins. The one was disobedient, the other is obedient. The one then brings death and condemnation, the other brings life and justification. So the whole structure of the passage then, and the whole argument is that of legal representation. And more to the point, as I've said, whenever we lost in Adam, we have more than regained in Christ. We all have a father who got us into this mess. But we also have another Adam now who has come, and he did no sin, and he obeyed, and his righteousness becomes ours. Now, can you see how this works out from chapter 4? We saw this morning, remember that key word that we saw repeated through chapter 4? The word imputed or counted, verse 3, it was counted to him for righteousness. Not Verse 4, not counted as a gift, but as a due. Verse 5, we have the same. Faith is counted for righteousness. Verse 6, God counts righteousness or imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed is the man, verse 8, against whom the Lord will not impute his sin, and so on. We have it in verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. Again, verse 22, 23, 24. Clearly, this is a theme in Paul's passage. And his point is to say that our that in accounting terms, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Our sin is not counted against us or imputed to us. Now what we've seen with chapter 5 is that there are in fact three imputations. There's the imputation of Adam's sin to all of humanity. There is, for those who believe, the imputation of our sin to Christ. And there is his, the imputation of his righteousness to us. So, here are the books. The law court of heaven. Here's the books. We come to stand before God in judgment. And over here you have the debit column, and over here the credit column. 
pulls it up, Fred Zaspel's name at the top. Now on the one side, the debit column, oh my, I don't want to tell you what's listed there. On the credit column, and nothing. Now he turns the page, and at the top it doesn't say Fred Zaspel, it says Jesus Christ. And here we have a debit column and a, and a credit column. And on the credit, on the debit column, you got nothing. Alright? On the credit column, you got everything. He's done it all. And this imputation of sin works this way, that Christ takes my place in such a way that now when the God opens the books, as it were, and turns to the page that says, Jesus Christ, it says under there, greed, hot temper, lust. Can I go on? That's what he has. And when I turn back to my page in judgment, on the credit column it says, perfect righteousness. He's always done all of the things that please the and these are the books by which we are judged. This isn't some kind of uh, make-believe. This isn't some kind of legal fiction. But because Christ has taken our place and we stand in him, our sin has been given to him. His righteousness has been given to us. And so, I for one love this principle of legal representation. It doesn't upset me at all to think that Adam's sin has been imputed to me, and that I'm born a sinner. Because by this very principle, I know I would never have done better, and by this same principle, I have hope before God. Because there is a second Adam who has come, who has obeyed God perfectly, and he is my representative head. And this, then, is the value of Jesus Christ, and this is the whole import of the gospel that Paul has been expounding to this point, that God has dealt with the world under two representative heads. In Adam, we've lost it all. In Christ, we've gained it all back and more. And because of what he has done, meeting God's just requirements in our place, we stand before God thoroughly acquitted. And again, what we emphasized this morning, this is so important for us to recognize, that what this means in practical everyday experience is to say we've got to learn to think like Christians. We've got to learn to have our minds shaped by the gospel. That my standing and my acceptance before God has nothing to do with me. God doesn't accept me because of my best day. And he doesn't reject me because of my worst day. God accepts me and is favorable toward me only because I have someone who stood in my place and acted on my behalf and done for me all that God requires of me. It's really an odd thing, I think, one of, one of the odd things about Christian worship, that we have always, throughout the centuries, Christians have not minded at all, in fact, made a point in their singing to acknowledge what lost sinners we are. It's really a kind of an odd thing. If you can think of it from the standpoint of the world, you walk into the church and you hear these people singing about what worms they are, how lost they are, and wicked and condemned. And you think, what kind of a people are these? The reason we don't mind saying it is because all of that sin has been given to someone else. 
All of the condemnation has been borne by our substitute. And in place of all of that ugliness that we've given him, he's given us his righteousness. And we stand before God perfectly acquitted because we have him as our head. So that in review, we have the doctrine of justification. We've seen the need for justification. And now in chapters 3 through 5, Paul has expounded the method of justification. Justification, its meaning is God's declarative act. It's his declaration that sinners are accepted before God. It is God looking at sinners and saying, not guilty, righteous. The basis for this justification is imputation. God declares us righteous because of Jesus. Recipients of this justification are those who believe in Jesus. And that is why then this faith matter is so important throughout this whole section. We come to God not claiming that we've contributed anything, but we come to God saying, all the hope that I have is bound up with the Lord Jesus Christ. My whole standing is in Him. Amen. Any questions before we have the Lord's Supper? Yes, Eddie. That's right. You can't have the one without the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, If you don't want this matter of representation in Adam, then you're on your own. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we come to remember our Lord and what He has done for us in saving us. We pray that You would Use this time as it is intended, as a memorial for him, to refresh our hearts, to enliven our faith in this one who has done for us all that you require of us. We pray in his name.